Welcome to episode 33 of Sugidama podcast, the podcast about Japanese sake, the drink which has been evolving since the ancient past. But today I'm going to talk about the development which took place in modern times. And by modern times, I mean the mid-19th century and beyond. But first, let me tell you about our sponsor, London Sake which has one of the widest selections of premium and craft sake available online today. You can choose from over 100 sake from 25 breweries and they will deliver across the UK and many European markets. And if you don't know what sake to choose, you can use simple online tasting notes together with very sensible and affordable food pairings to help you decide. What's more? You can get a 10% discount by just using the code SUGIDAMA, all caps, during checkout. London Sake, making sake simple. My name is Alex and I live in London. I am a certified sake specialist, sake judge, sake educator and sake advocate. Besides this podcast, I have SUGIDAMA blog, where I write about all things sake, publish tasting notes, overviews and information about sake events happening in London. So today I am concluding the series about the evolution of sake brewing, and we are going to talk about the transition from the Kimoto method to the modern Sokujimoto method. However, it's not the last episode in the series. There are two very interesting interviews to follow, and I will talk about them at the end. Last time, we were talking about the Edda period, which brought many techniques and innovation into sake brewing, resulting in better and more stable sake. However, it didn't stop there. The Edda period ended with the fall of the Tokugawa shogunate and the restoration of the imperial power, though still only nominally, which was called the Meiji Restoration, where Meiji was the name of the reigning emperor. It was a huge shift from the economic, social and cultural points of view. The whole structure of the Japanese society experienced a tectonic shift. The system of governance was completely overthrown and the country started fast westernization. And a part of this westernization was the inflow of western drinks, which started to compete with traditional sake. If you remember episode 1, it was when sake got its new name, Nihonshu, in order to distinguish it from other non-Japanese alcoholic drinks, which were also called sake. So the major restoration officially happened in 1868, and only four years later sake was introduced to the Western world at the Vienna International Exposition in 1872 under the proper name while sake was exported before to the Dutch colony called Batavia, current Indonesia, it was the first time sake officially traveled to Europe. A few years later, in 1878, the first bottle of sake went on sale, and I think it was Hakutsuru Sake Brewery that started it. Interestingly, it took quite a long time for sake brewers to embrace bottling. According to the excellent, passionate foodie blog, 
Even after the invention of continuously bottling machines in the 1930s, by 1940, only 40% of all sake was bottled. The rest was sold as in the old times, on tap at sake shops. Basically, the breweries were shipping their sake in wooden casks to sake shops, and customers had to come with their own vessels to buy sake. Sake was delivered undiluted, Genshu as it's called, and the shop owner was diluting it before selling. Some owners were so greedy that the sake they sold was called Kingyo sake, from Kingyo, goldfish. People were saying that it was so weak that even goldfish could live in it. It wasn't until 1949 that most of the sake started to sell in bottles. As I said, one of the key strategies of the new major government was the very fast westernization of Japan. And for that, the government, like all other governments, needed money. And as we all know, the key source of money for government is taxation. The new Japanese government very quickly realized that alcohol was a great source of taxes. So in 1875, the existing and very complicated Sakikabu system we were talking about in the previous episode was abolished. The regulation and taxes were streamlined, making it possible for anyone with brewing skills and money to set up a sake brewery. And it worked. In the same year, about 30,000 of new sake breweries emerged in the country. Simultaneously, the government started limiting home brewing, doboroku, as it was quite impossible to get taxes from those who make sake at home. In 1875, a limit of one koku, or 180 liters, was set for the sake allowed to be brewed in one year. In 1882, the government introduced a special license for making doboroku, followed by the total prohibition of home brewing in 1899, the policy which still exists in Japan. During those years, the sake tax was gradually rising to the point that 30% of the major government's revenues came from the tax on sake. Sake breweries were fighting the tax increases, but it was quite difficult. The government needed a lot of money. The tax increases became a major factor in sake breweries bankruptcies. By 1882, only seven years after the simplifying sake laws, only 16,000 out of 30,000 breweries survived. And that number halved by the beginning of the Showa period in 1926. The Second World War resulted in another 4,000 breweries shutting down. While sake production was growing fast after the war, reaching its peak in the 1970s, it started to decline after that, due to strong competition from beer and wine, and the generation change. So currently we have only 1200 breweries, of which not all are actually operational and brewing sake. Another important development in the sake industry during the Meiji period was the development of sake rice. Before, sake was made from the same rice which was used for cooking. However, 
things started to change after the emergence of thousands of new sake breweries. As the sake tax was rising, most of the breweries which could survive in this environment were those established by rich, large landowners. At that time, it was quite common for large rice producers to put aside some amount of rice after the harvest and stock it up in case the next year's crops were poor or there was a famine. But after a year, the quality of the rice usually deteriorated. And if the harvest was good, it was difficult to sell the old rice. And you didn't want to keep it for another year as it could become completely useless. So many of these landowners established sake breweries where they could use these stockpiles of cheap rice. Those breweries gradually developed into what is now called big breweries. Those guys had more resources, more money and opportunities to study rice as they also produced it in order to determine which is better for eating and which for sake brewing. This process started just before the major period but intensified after the sake laws were simplified. The famous Omachi rice was established in 1866 after its discovery a few years earlier in 1859 in the nowadays Okayama prefecture, followed by Shinriki in 1877 in Hyoga prefecture and Kokuryo Miyako in 1889 in Yamaguchi prefecture. By the end of the 19th century, the sake industry became a very important source of tax revenues for the Japanese government. In 1897, they reached 33%, one-third of the total government income. So both the politicians and government officials were interested in the good development of the sake business in the country. However, the sake brewing techniques at that time were not perfect. The use of the dominating Kimoto method and wild yeast couldn't guarantee consistently good sake. Also, 10% of all maromi, the fermenting mash, in any particular year got spoiled. Another problem was the contamination of the yeast which lived in the brewery. If it happened, it negatively affected brewing for several years afterwards. It all affected the production and sales of sake and the government's tax revenues. So the Japanese government was very keen to modernize and improve the sake industry to secure stable tax revenues. So in 1904, it founded the National Research Institute of Brewing, NRIB which was controlled by the Ministry of Finance, of course. The aim of the institute was to use scientific research in order to improve the existing brewing methods and develop new production techniques. Okay, before we talk about the development championed by the National Institute of Brewing, which revolutionized the sake industry, let me remind you about London Sake, our sponsor, and their huge selection of curated sake sets, which provide a great opportunity to explore various styles and types of sake. Have a look, but don't forget about the magic word, sugidama, all caps, 
to get your 10% discount. While Kimoto was a dominant sake brewing method during the Edda and most of the Meiji periods, it was not a monolithic technique which existed for 300 years unchanged. It was more like a progression of various improvements and techniques and a collective of methods. For example, the main feature which is now associated with Kimoto, rice pounding, called Yama Oroshi or Motosuri, only became common sometime at the beginning of the 1800s. With the establishment of the National Research Institute of Brewing and technological advances of the time, two new brewing methods were developed in the beginning of the 1900s. The first was called Yamahai. Yamahai is a short version of Yama Oroshi Haishimoto, which means a brewing method without pounding the rice. The method was introduced in 1909 by the NRIB and the idea was that adding more water and keeping the motor, the starter, at a higher temperature was enough to make good sake. No more Yamaroshi. Also, one of the reasons for getting rid of rice pounding was the higher polishing ratio achieved by that time. The higher polished rice was able to absorb enzymes from koji more efficiently. I'm not going to go into details of Yamahai in this episode. I have covered the basics in the episode 4, and I might do a special episode on the Yamahai sake in the future. While Yamahai made the life of sake breweries, especially Kurabita brewery workers, easier, it was still a quite complicated method and required a lot of knowledge, skills, and years of experience from the toji, a master brewer. The risk of sake going bad was still pretty high. So the researchers of NRIB didn't stop there. A year later, in 1910, they introduced another method, Sokujimoto, which really revolutionized the sake making industry. Again, I have covered the difference between Kimoto Yamahai and Sokujimoto in episode 4, but just to recap. In both Kimoto and Yamahai methods, there is an initial stage in the development of the starter focused on growing lactic acid bacteria, which provided an acidic environment friendly for sake yeast and unfriendly for other harmful microorganisms. However, for hundreds of years, I guess this particular mechanism was not very well understood. So when the scientists of NRIB finally cracked it, they realized that you can just add lactic acid into the starter to create this acidic environment, which saves a lot of labor and time. But not only that. The Sokujimoto method provides a much more consistent way of making good sake, because the yeast starter can be made safely with little influence from temperature fluctuations. Therefore, it doesn't require that level of experience and skills necessary for Kimoto or Yamahai. I don't want to downplay the skills of sake brewers who use the Sokujo method in any way, uh, because good sake always requires a lot of skills and experience to make. 
But the Sokoju method is still easier in terms of consistently producing good sake. Especially back then, when the technology was not still well developed. Another important aspect of the Sokoju method is that it opened a way for producing clean and light sake, which became a feature with the emergence of Ginja style. As lactic acid is put straight into the tank, there's no exposure to any outside bacteria that give Kimoto and Yamahai their flavors. They just cannot survive in an acidic environment. So the introduction of the Sokoju method made it possible to reduce spoilage, labor, and time of making sake, and make sake clean and light. Of course, now you can come across beautiful Kimoto Yamahai Junmai Daiginjo sake. They often have a clean and elegant taste that I sometimes wonder what was the point to use the Kimoto method, but I guess it still gives some punchiness or gaminess to the taste, even if it remains in the background. I think I'm going to stop here. There are a lot of things that happened in sake brewing in modern times. The first sake award in 1911, separation and cultivation of winning strands of sake yeast, called association yeast. There are so many of them now. Changes in the distribution model, with sake being distributed outside the areas they were produced, and so on. I still would like to make one point. Uh, while reading about the development of sake brewing methods, I was always puzzled why it took so long for brewers to realize that they didn't need to pound the rice and could just increase the amount of water and the temperature. And why the change happened so suddenly? Bum! And everyone switched to Yamahai. Bum! And year later, everyone is using Sokujumoto. In reality, it was not that simple. First of all, technology and rice polishing technology in particular had to improve to allow Yamahai and Sokujumoto to be used successfully. Also, the understanding of the mechanisms of sake brewing on the biological and chemical levels only came at the end of the 19th, the beginning of the 20th century. And without that, it was quite difficult to make technological advances. The establishment of the NRIB was a very important fact as well. I guess for hundreds of years, the knowledge of the new developments and inventions in sake making made by breweries or brewers was probably kept by a particular toji, or toji guilt at best, and not available for outsiders. The NRIB collected this information, studied it, and using the scientific knowledge, developed new techniques which it then made available to all breweries. So process was not that sudden. Okay, today I'm going to feature my favorite Kimoto sake, uh, Daishichi Masakura, a beautiful Junmai Ginjo sake brewed using the traditional Kimoto method. It has an elegant but quite intensive and complex aroma dominated by fruity scents like pear, banana and melon but with some sweet notes. I picked cheesecake, raisins and a bit of caramel while my friend found licorice. 
The Kimota method definitely provided a certain depth to aroma, and behind fruits and sweets you can feel a tiny bit of truffle and even wood. Daishichi Masakura has an intensive flavor, buttery texture, and medium body. It is not too sweet. In terms of the tasting profiles, it's fruity and elegant, but on the full flavor spectrum. I tried Daishichi Masakura for the first time at the JFC Expo event, and I liked it even more than its more refined Mino Wamon Junmai Daiginjo. Daishichi Brewery was founded in 1752, making it more than 250 years old. It's now one of the leading breweries using the Kimoto method. It's also famous for its super flat rice polishing technique. I've written about them a few times on my blog. You can drink Daishichi Masakura either chilled, as we did, or slightly warmed. In terms of food pairing, the brewery recommends it with dishes with creamy sweet profile. But it's quite versatile sake thanks to the Kimoto method, which makes it quite food friendly. We paired Daishichi Masakura with tofu and wakame salad and grilled misakod, which was a great combination. The reason why I picked up Daishichi Masakura is that this sake shows how the traditional Kimoto method is used nowadays to produce the sake which is, has uh, all the characteristics of the modern refined and fruity uh, ginger sake. So it's, it's quite interesting combination. And Daishichi Brewery, they make only uh, Kimoto sake. So it's a, probably a very good example of how the old techniques survived during the modern times and uh, provide a lot of depth in terms of uh, taste and aroma, but uh, make very elegant and fruity and light sake. That's it for today. It was the final episode of the Sake Evolution series, but I'll be back with two interviews as a follow-up. The first interview is with Tom Wilson from Kanpai, London, about the sake he makes and which represents the modern trend in sake brewing. The second interview is with Jim Ryan and Andrew Russell, who together do very insightful sake deep dive podcast. You might remember Andrew Russell from episode 19, where he was talking very passionately about sake yeast. So, in the new interview, Jim, Andrew, and I discussed modern trends in sake making. I haven't yet decided what I'm going to talk about in the last episode of the season, which will be aired at the end of July. So, if you have any suggestions, please let me know. In the meantime, buy a bottle of Daishichi sake and enjoy it. The last time I saw Daishichi Masakura in Japan Center online store. You can also buy any other Kimoto or Yamaha sake from London Sake website, where you can get a 10% discount by entering Sugidama, all in caps, at the checkout, or from other retailers. If you have any questions or suggestions about any sake topic, just drop me a line. My email address is alex at sugidama.co.uk 
or you can tag me on Instagram or Twitter at Sugidama blog in one word. Again, if you like the episode and want more, hit the subscribe button and you will get every new episode downloaded in your player as soon as it's out. If you would like to give me a bit of support, please leave a review or rate Sugidama podcast. There are two places you can easily leave a review on Apple Podcasts, if you use iPhone, iPad or Mac, go to the Sugidama podcast page there, scroll down to the bottom where you can see reviews. There will be a link to add your own review. Another option is the Podchaser website, where you can leave a review of any podcast, regardless of what platform you use to listen to it. I've got a link to my page there in the show notes. You need to register at Podchaser, but it's easy because you can use your Twitter or Facebook credentials and then leave a review. Spotify now allows you to rate the podcasts you listen to. So if you use this platform, rate Sugidama podcast there. Of course, you can share this podcast with your friends on your social media, chat apps, anywhere. A lot of people mention a friend's recommendation as a reason for listening to a particular podcast. So you can be that friend and support Sugidama podcast. Thanks a lot for listening. Kampai. Sugi 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 dama blog. Sugi 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 dama blog.